Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NY Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufel, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The NY Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrence and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NuclearCast. Of course, I'm your host as always, Adam Wilder. And today, we of course have a great guest. You know, we we never have a bad guest. I, I, I can't think of any time when we ever have. So in keeping with that tradition, we've got another great guest. Brendan Melly is director of the Center for the Study of Weapons of Mass Destruction at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at National Defense University. And of course, for those of you who might not know Brendan, he has a long career in the intel world and in government. And so it's, of course, a pleasure to have you on Nuclecast. Thanks for joining us, Brendan. Thank you, Adam. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks to all the ANWA folks who helped put this on. Yes. So today, you know, one of our objectives is we're, you know, I've have a background in professional military education. So I like to advocate for education. And, and so you have, you know, into use center that focuses on WMD nuclear. And I, I wanted you to tell the folks, uh, the listeners sort of give them a little bit about the, the center and what you do, who sponsors you, what, you know, what role you play so that they're familiar with you as well. That's great. Happy to do that. Yeah, so the uh, WMD Center, which is the shorthand for saying uh, CSWMD or spelling that out, uh, it was actually uh, uh, created or founded in uh, 1994. So this is our 30th anniversary. And it started when um, with a memo that uh, uh, then Assistant Secretary Ash Carter wrote uh, to the J5 and then to who was Barry McCaffrey at the time and to the president of NDU saying, I want there to be a, a center for counterproliferation research, what it was called back then. And of the missions, education was the first one listed because of the, the need for, for, uh, for PME to have and students to have an appreciation. And if you think back 1994, so the wall had fallen, fallen uh, the Nunn-Luger program had just begun. Uh, we had just learned about the extent uh, in the previous couple of years of Iraq's nuclear program. And the, the fear was that more states are pursuing capabilities kind of under the radar, that the great power competition with the Soviet Union has ended. So what else do we need to think about as concerns for the force? So the center uh, evolved during the 90s. 9-11 was a big uh, bellwether for both the anthrax attacks and the, the fear of nuclear terrorism. And the center changed its name from uh, Center for Counterproliferation Research to its current name back in 2002. Um, I should mention that the, the first director was Ambassador Bob Joseph, who, who many know by reputation, uh, yeah. if not personally. And uh, he played an active role in really shaping the direction of the center. His One of his first hires was uh, an uh, Air Force colonel at the time that he met at NATO named John Reichart, and he was the second director uh, when when Bob Joseph went to uh, the White House uh, to serve uh, on the transition team and then in the 
the first administration of George um, Herbert, no, excuse me, George W. Bush. Um, and so Bob is the one that from the center directed and, and kind of helped shape what the president signed in 2002 as the first national strategy to combat WMD. So that kind of put the center in a place where we were uh, during out the during the 2000s, we were a good place to come for thinking on strategic issues on deterrence, counterproliferation, and that's continued into the 20-teens and into the 2020s. So we've evolved, we've been large, we've been smaller, um, and it, it depends on what, as you mentioned, our sponsors. So being a 100% reimbursable center here at NDU, all of our work is funded by government sponsors, all government, that, uh, that, that ask us to do either research and analysis, uh, policy support projects, and uh, the range is from the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, the U.S. Air Force, Special Operations Command, OSD, both policy as well as acquisition and sustainment. Mm-hmm. Um, ODNI has been a sponsor in the past. OSD, R&E, State Department. I'm looking at my list. Department of Homeland Security. And uh, so, again, we get a broad range of requests in the modalities. So both uh, nuclear, chemical, biological. Again, not many are looking at the radiological and um, it, it, they're all these timely topics. And it's, I think what I like to say is that our ability to stay close to the issues and support senior policymakers keeps us relevant for future work. And um, it's, it's a great place to be. Yeah. And you, you guys have had some direct, in, you know, in addition to the teaching that you do, you've had some direct impacts on policy. Can you te- give us some examples of that? Sure. Um, it just in the recent uh, frame, one of our distinguished fellows, uh, Paul Bernstein, was a primary drafter of the 2022 Nuclear Posture Review. And so he was over at the Pentagon and at both the working groups, shaping, writing, uh, and he did that. Uh, most recently, my deputy director, Pat Terrell, shaped what came out last uh, fall as the, the DOD strategy for uh, countering WMD. And which is a rewrite of the 2014 strategy. So those are two recent examples of, yeah, just active involvement. Uh, We also have a a distinguished fellow, Dr. Diane DeUlius, who was called on to help shape the thinking for what came out last year as the Biodefense Posture Review, the first ever for the Department of Defense. So yeah, we're fortunate to have great people here and that, uh, that, that senior senior uh, leaders turn to for advice and for support. Yeah, that's uh it's always good and this is one of the things that if you know if you're not within the PME system and you know into you even better because you're right there that you you know you can oftentimes you know for many academics it's theory, it's research methods, it's but for you it's you get to actually apply it, see it in you know in practice and then you get to come back and, you know, talk to, you know, those very best uh, officers uh, about, you know, that topic. So it's it's kind of a win-win and a great yeah, opportunity. We, one of the, uh, you know, just because of uh, how we receive funding from our sponsors and other priorities over at the, over at the Pentagon, uh, in the last couple of years, our education role has shifted. And uh, so we're, we're you know, we're hoping that comes back, expecting that comes back to have a more active part as the 
And, and the chairman's instruction for NDU, we're designated the focal point for WMD education and JPME. Um, as you know, the 2018 uh, Nuclear Posture Review and then re reinforced by 2022 NPR um, a, aligns with designating strategic deterrence as a commander or a chairman joint chiefs of staff special area of emphasis. And that has impact in the JPME system because it is a, uh, in the, in the last uh, officer military professional education policy or the OPMEP, um, the, it was a requirement now as of 2020 that all PME must address among two things. One was nuclear capabilities and concepts as directed by the 2018 NPR. And so, you know, because of COVID, I don't know what the, uh, how the J7 of the joint staff, which is responsible for overseeing JPME, um, to what extent all the various elements of PME are addressing and, and integrating nuclear capabilities and concepts, but that is now a requirement in PME, which is a good thing. Yeah, I remember when that came out, and uh, uh, I was sort of, um, you know, it's it's uh, when the J7, it's somewhat inside baseball stuff, of course, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with the OPMAP and how PME works, but when the J7 directs, you know, the services will do it. And then the services are like, okay, well, you know, thank you for your inputs. Uh, you know, these are our schools for our officers that we pay for. So, uh, and what do I know. give up? Tell me what to take <laughs> off the curriculum. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. I remember when I was down at, uh, at air university and, you know, we'd have these inevitable, you know, what do you teach about nuclear? And I'd, I'd be the one assigned to, pull it all together and it's and they'd be we need more nuclear you know this would be air force saying it then be okay well if you can tell the mobility guys and you can tell you know the air combat guys to, to that you know that we're gonna you know we'll cut their stuff to give you more nuke stuff then then we'll do it you just you just get them to say okay to that so it's a perennial challenge you know with them within pme because of the pact yeah. you know yeah. these are really packed years yes. that you spend at, at, you know, whatever school you're at. So it's, right. it's always a, you know, always a challenge. Now, another topic we were going to talk about, and it's kind of one that, you know, and as we were discussing before the podcast, one that I'm kind of excited to talk about, cause we've, I've never had a guest, you know, want to talk about this. And, and this was the idea of deterring the use of chemical weapons and, and how do you effectively do it? And, you know, and it sort of has this, this, um, you know, and it was the WMD center. I think when Elaine was there, Elaine Bunn, mm -hmm. I think she did the tailored deterrence book and sort of mm -hmm. brought that idea out. And so I always think back to tailored deterrence as opposed to integrated deterrence. Cause I, I think it's actually a, a better approach, but, or cross domain deterrence. That's kind of a nice way to talk about it. So let's talk about that a little bit. What's your take and, and how, do, how are you thinking about this idea of, you know, strategic deterrence or deterrence writ large of chemical weapons and how this, what's the dynamic here? How are you thinking about it? Well, thanks. Um, it is an interesting question that that I think many um, assume it's a it, it's a taken care of issue, and and perhaps it is, but I'm not sure that it it is uh, the, the 
it is thought through as as far. So we know that back when President Nixon ended the offensive biological weapons program, that the the debate that happened in the uh, among his senior advisors was that well we don't need an offensive program BW program to deter the Soviet offensive BW program because we have nuclear weapons. And then in 1996, when uh, President Clinton signed the Chemical Weapons Convention, and we had already um, seen the, the, the risks of chemical weapons used by Iran and Iraq, um, and the, you know, the stories of Halabja hadn't yet come out yet of what Saddam Hussein did, there was, um, trying to look through some of the records, there was an understanding and there was actually some testimony from uh, senior defense officials saying we have some tried not to be explicit. Some uh, you know, were explicit. We have this ultimate backstop of nuclear weapons. And um, you know, I think one of the challenges is what do you mean by uh, the use of uh, and I'll focus on chem right now. Uh, what's the threshold for a chemical weapons attack that makes us consider you know, the declaratory policy and, and what the NPR says with this, you know, calculated ambiguity that, you know, we, we reserve the right to respond to a strategic attack with whatever means we have. Now, I think most people would understand that a chemical weapons attack is not, you know, does not rise to that level, wouldn't, wouldn't be considered. Um, but, but I would say that, you know, we look at, say, Syria use and, and the, you know, the, the very famous line that President Obama inserted by himself into his own remarks about the red line, a serious use. Um, it didn't stop, uh, you know, in a few hundred tomahawks coming over the next couple of years by two administrations on Syria, didn't stop them from doing it. Um, there was no deterrence of Russia using an advanced nerve agent in the capital of a nuclear armed NATO country. Uh, you know, a few diplomats were kicked out. And you might say, well, those, that's not you know, strategic uh, use of chemical weapons, and, and they're not. And so we're, we're not thinking of you know, flying an aircraft with sarin and all the modeling that was done during the Cold War about you know, how many kilograms of a, or, of a, or, or liters of a particular agent would kill how many people downwind. Uh, we're not talking that. But my, my, the way I've been trying to think about it is any use of chem on the battlefield against an ally in a in a civilian population, any response to that is going to go to the president of the United States, and that's a strategic issue, in my yeah. view. Oh, um, sorry about the light there. Um, it, it's on a. It will not move for me, so I'll just get a little bit closer if the lighting's okay. Yeah, you're good. The uh, and so one of the hypotheticals that, that I would like to use, and this actually gets to education as well, is if a year ago um, Putin threatened back when he was making noises about that the U.S. had chemical weapons in Ukraine and, and trying to advance that, that disinformation, if he threatened an air base where U.S. forces were or NATO forces uh, were congregating to support Ukraine, um, and not necessarily you know combat forces, but uh, supply forces, a, a depot, uh, an airfield in, in Poland, for example. If he threatened to use chemical weapons, well, if it's on NATO soil, that probably would be an Article Four consultation right away. 
and there'd be deterrence messages. Don't do that. You know, we, we don't want to do that. But our how the message that we would use would rely on a conventional response. If Putin used chemical weapons, then we're talking Article 5. We're talking how does NATO respond to this? And the, there, there are other uh, ways that chemical weapons are referred to that kind of muddy the water. So the National Defense Strategy says that advanced chembio is a strategic issue. It's a, I think the, the, the phrase, it's, it's part of the complex escalation problem in the security environment. But are chemical weapons at that scale, which we would not say is advanced necessarily, you know, what is advanced chemical weapons use? Um, is that on, on, the, on the range of being, you know, at that threshold? Is it something that requires a conventional response, and how do we um, how do we signal that? So chemical weapons are kind of unconventional; they're kind of conventional, and you know, just by looking at it at, at a very top level, we have two types of responses: we have a conventional response, we have a strategic response, which could include nuclear weapons, but we don't signal that any use of chem is kind of more important more strategic, more deadly, more of a concern than just launching short-range missiles against that notional airbase. And do we want to have a more explicit message that, that we could tell possible adversaries about, you know, don't even go down that path, even small use? And how are we communicating that? Yeah. That's a good question. And what is, of course, your answer? <laughs> well, hold on. Well, before it, we do that, before you answer, yes, of course, it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. So with everybody's bated breath, we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Analog Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back. Okay, Brendan, you posited a question. <laughs> now, now, now you've got to answer the question. Well, so I, go, I was doing a little bit of reading on this. So, you know, uh, Scott Sagan, back about 20, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, uh, talked about the commitment trap. And that if we did have an explicit or, or a slightly less ambiguous statement about how we'd respond to Cambio, well, well, then are we stuck in that, you know, when an adversary tests us and we don't want to lose credibility, do we have this commitment trap where we have to uh, respond? Um, you know, the after uh, there's another uh, author, Bruce Klinger, who wrote an article back about 10 years ago, uh, after the Syria red line and, and after the um, the response to that, responses to that, that he wrote something, it might have been in um, 38 North, that uh, North Korea is taking a good eye on this. And I'm because I printed out, I'm pull out a quote that there's been a dizzying, dizzying array of contradictory U.S. statements, cross red lines and reticence to fulfill declarations of intent. 
And I'll pull out one more uh, document. This is the Defense Science Board. They did a task force on this and thinking maybe eight years ago, I forget. And looking at this very specific question, they concluded that the task force could find no national standalone CW-specific policy for response to chemical weapons use against us. Adversaries are thus free to test the water, end quote. So to answer, what do we do? We have to be more explicit. I think we have to be very explicit that there will be a, a, a significant conventional response. We're going to have to be a little bit uh, uh, vague about what is the, you know, if you cross this line, we're never going to do that. You know, here, here, go up to this point and no further. And, of course, adversaries will, will, will learn to do that. Uh, we have to have in our own mind what is a what is that threshold for which we would bring more uh, concern or, or excuse me more more destruction on whoever did it. The other challenge is um, what if it's a non-attributable uh, use of camp? Who who would we retaliate against? So it's it's a more complex problem, but I think we have to enhance our declaratory statements, not necessarily not in the NPR. But to make it clear that any aggression against us, there is a response. Any strategic aggression, there is a response. But this conventional plus aggression of chemical weapons, that should get specified as a more explicit response. Yeah, see, maybe I'll play devil's advocate. Sure. And... I'm I'm a big fan of chemical weapons. I actually like them a lot, especially for our adversaries, because, you know, I, I I wrote a book maybe 10 years ago that talked about chemical and biological weapons. And in, you know, doing all the research and analysis for it, chemical weapons are not particularly effective, at least the ones that we've seen thus far. I mean, there could be a day when they're you know, this new type comes in and it kills everybody and it doesn't easily can, get dispersed. Can I ask Adam, sure. Yeah. So when you say not effective, what do you mean? At killing a lot of people or at disrupting strategy and operations? Uh, I mean, in terms of killing folks that, you know, they've, you know, they, you know, take, go back to World War One, where, you know, the wind changed and they, blew, you know, chemical weapons blew back on, you know, the troops using them, they're just, they're hard to manage. They dissipate quickly. They have a lot of challenges in using them. They're kind of a terror weapon mm-hmm. because we, there's a lot of fear wrapped up into them that, you know, everybody fears kind of that for some reason they don't fear getting blown up or shot as much as they fear, you know, choking yeah. or blood, you know, that's really fearful. Whereas getting blown to bits doesn't seem to, cause fear so that they have some utility there but in terms of if you wanted to have like let's say maximum battlefield effect they're they're not as efficient mm-hmm. and you know biological weapons have been even more fickle i mean maybe uh covid is you know sort of a example of of what could be a biological age a man-made biological agent that's kind of highly effective but they, you know, they, they get hot and die. They, they have all these other problems with them that are make them almost or more hard to use right. than chemical. And so my take, and they don't generate the level of fear uh, and reticence that a nuclear weapon does. 
And so as I think about chemical weapons, I kind of think the challenge with creating red lines and other things is because they don't cause the, you know, they don't cause the level of destruction that say a nuke does and therefore generate the psychological effect that it's harder to make threats about them that you, you sort of have to, your threats can be similar to what you would threaten a conventional attack. Like, Hey, if you blow up my air base, like, Hey, if you blow up my air base with, you know, missile strikes or drone strikes or whatever, or you, you know, you chemically attack my air base that my response that those are kind of, similar level responses that you could have in terms of credibility and in terms of the credibility of your threats. And that's mm -hmm. just, and I, I could be wrong, but just as I've looked at it and sort of tried to think like, you know, a Russian or a Chinese military strategist and, and how credible would I see U S threats? Right. Uh, that, well, you know, I mean, I, I see, I see that argument and I raise you one. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, one of the things with chemical weapons is, you know, the vast majority, 99% of the countries in the world have signed on to the chemical weapons convention. So, you know, they should not. And if we were to detect them, it would be you know, building up a, a more offensive capability on a scale that would be battlefield use and kill a lot of people, as you're mentioning. Um, yeah, that, that'd be clearly a violation and, and there would be international condemnation, just even pursuing that type of program. But you mentioned an airfield. So if the airfield got hit with chemical weapons and required decontamination and couldn't be used as a, as a logistics hub or that sorties were flying out of, well, that's a big disruption on your operational approach. Sure. You know, if in the Middle East, to use that for example, if some of the, the proxies of Iran uh, discovered that they could use something as simple as, you know, toxic industrial chemicals um, against U.S. bases there, that changes our, our strategy. It changes the way we operate. We have to think about protecting troops, protecting civilians, and we have to think about more aggressively going after where that came from. So it's, what I'm saying is that even small use requires us to think carefully about what, for example, what do chemical weapons use mean for escalation management? You know, it, it does there, there might be an automatic uh, gut reaction by the American people. We have to respond stronger to the use of, of a small use of chemical weapons. Um, but again, that's something that go back to the president for making a decision about how hard, how far, where we where we would respond. So it, it, it's a complicated issue. It's not just a conventional plus attack is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's different and you therefore have to think different and yeah, throws a kink into your plan and it's, right. you know, why can't they just fight? Change. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, that's certainly true. Now, here, here's, I'm going to change topics on you because, yep. you know, we're, we're getting late in the show. So I'm going to bring out Bob, the genie oh. and I'm going to raw rub Bob's lamp. And now of course, Bob pops out and Bob <laughs> grants guests of Nuclecast three wishes. They cannot wish for world peace, wealth, anything like that. They have mm -hmm. to wish for make wishes related to the topics we've been discussing on the show. Mm-hmm. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to you. 
What is your first wish from Bob the Genie? Well, the, the standard answer is I want unlimited wishes, but <laughs> but that, that I, I believe that's um, that that's it's pre- preempted, and I can't do that. Uh, very very. Well, thank you for not teeing that up ahead of time, so you're really stumping me, putting me on the spot. <laughs> now also, you you can talk about you know the WMD Center. You can talk about chemical weapons. You you know we've got we've had a couple of different topics, so. You know, you can you can mix and match your wishes as you desire. <laughs> well, so as long as you're not forcing me that the first thing out of my mouth is the highest priority, right? It's 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 in the wishes. Um, so one of my long concerns, and it's coming up within uh, the 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 staffs at the services, in particular, Air Force and Army, are thinking more about uh, education. Um, and education at the different levels of PME on the, the learning outcomes necessary so that when you are um, a flag officer and you have to make kind of national resource decisions, you understand the impact of all adversary use of all weapons of mass destruction type modalities. And just building that awareness, building that general understanding, building an appreciation for it, since it's the education world too, it's not just understanding the concepts, it's being able to articulate them, right? It's being able to capture them in writing. It's be able to brief somebody. You've got 30 minutes, give me a briefing on why that chemical attack, you know, is, what do I do about it? Um, so there's, there's an awareness issue. So my, one of my wishes would be to kind of have this increase awareness. You know, I was commissioned in the army a long time ago and I still have in my drawer at home a deck of cards with all the Soviet, you know, vehicles that everybody had, you know, in that, that generation I'm a part of and generations before that we grew up understanding the Soviet threat. And you could say that about China. Now we, I don't think there's, you know, the current generation is learning about it. I don't know if future generations are really learning about the Chinese threat like we did the Soviet Union threat. So it takes time. It's a generational thing that uh, to, to really build this in. And we got to start now on, on all range of WMD threats, especially China. Yeah. Okay. So that's wish number one, an education wish. That's always a good wish. How about wish number two? Um, I'm going to parrot the, <laughs> this may be part of a joke, but the, uh, uh, the global zero statements back in the late 20 aughts that, you know, uh, nuclear weapons will no longer be necessary when all sources of regional conflict are resolved. So <laughs> let, let's get all sources of regional conflict resolved. And, you know, th- that's obviously tongue in cheek because that's never going to happen. And, and as I'm sure many of your listeners uh, would appreciate, you, you can't uninvent nuclear weapons. You can't uninvent some of the, the, the chemical weapons, biological weapons that the Soviets pursued. Um, and mankind is mankind and, and or humankind is humankind. And we're going to fight each other over resources. We're going to, you know, territory, whatever it is. So the conflict is inevitable. The reliance on on high end, high order, strategic, deadly uh, tools, it would be great if that was no longer, not that they would go away, but there was the, the stability that 
that was understood that if if I reserve the right and I do not um, threaten with a certain weapon, then you're not going to respond with a certain type of weapon. So it, it's a, and this is very, you know, Pollyannish. If there was common appreciation for there are some places we won't go. For example, it may not be a common appreciation, but there's concern about, you know, weapons in space. You know, there was an outer space treaty back in the 60s about not putting not putting nuclear weapons in space because there was an there was an agreement that, you know, that's bad for everybody. And 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 so maybe that getting that common appreciation and not among populations, but among leaderships of various countries, especially when there are turnovers and people want to demonstrate their I'm more uh, more of a strong leader than my predecessor. So I'm going to be more aggressive in my statements. There's there's an understanding. There's some things we don't we we are not going to do. Is that right. is that vague enough for you? Yeah, that's that. Uh, I, I'm following you. I'm following you. So that that now leads us to your final wish. Okay. The 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 um, the final wish, and again, this is this is a soft soft way of phrasing it, is that. You know, budgetarily, uh, monetarily, political support on the Hill and the American people that they understand that the mission of the Department of Defense is to deter war. The mission, the, the purpose of nuclear weapons is to deter war. And as adversaries increase their capabilities and develop new capabilities, we have to maintain the ability to deter. And if deterrence fails, to fight and win. We have to be prepared. We have to prevent all those P words that are in various strategies. And um, it would be great if every four years we didn't have this debate, uh, every administration, that there was this, you know, again, a common understanding that there's some things we just have to pay for so that we can continue to deter war. And I'll leave that pay for wide open, you know, open. I think many of your listeners and, and you might be thinking of, just the uh, you know, just the weapon systems that are in the palm, uh, but it's a number of things. It's uh, defensive measures. It's uh, it, it's agent defeat type weapons for uh, for chem and bio. There are many things we could invest in that will help us deter war. Yeah, I agree. I'd I'd like to invest in them as well. <laughs> Well, Brendan, we are out of time, and so I wanted to thank you for for coming on Nuclecast and and giving us an interesting discussion where we talk chemical weapons for the first time in the podcast history. So thanks for thanks for doing that. Absolutely. Well, thank again, thank you for the opportunity to do this, and I look forward to watching more of these Nuclecasts. You're doing a great job with them, Adam. Well, I appreciate that, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode. And we will see you next time. Well, if you didn't know anything about the WMD Center at NDU, now you do. And they, they produce some reports and other things. So make sure if you sort of look them up, you can go find that and, you know, read what they have to say. And, you know, they do good work and you know, they're a interesting organization, you know, that produces things that are important to us. So make sure you do that. And then, of course, you know, talking chemical weapons, you know, I don't give chemical weapons that much thought. Uh, I looked at them maybe a decade ago, and subsequently I kind of figured out, 
you know, chemical weapons are, you know, maybe a good sort of, they're good for the terror aspect, but they're less, you know, they're not going to fundamentally reshape the battlefield. So it was, it was good to hear what, you know, Brendan's take on it. And, you know, he had a, a different take and, you know, he, he has some, you know, he, he makes a point. So it was good to have that discussion, a little bit of a debate. So hopefully you enjoyed it as well. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Krumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.